listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Every once in a while I'm reminded of this gift of Sangha. This Saturday was one such uh, an occasion when a group of 20 of us were all jammed into this beautiful little yurt at the Green Gulch Farm and we just hung out together. Uh, And there was, uh, you know, I, I spilled a little Dharma juice on everybody as best I could, and uh, you know we went about our merry way. But there was something kind of kind of profound about it, um, and there always is. One of the things that's most difficult for us on this path, typically, is getting started. Most of us are brought to this path, brought to you know deep spiritual work, because of some disaster, because of something that just sparks. Uh, a sense of, of uh, lack, that something is lacking. And that's usually difficult. And then the difficult thing is recognizing, my goodness gracious, I can, I can read a little bit about this lack that I have or ways of, of dealing with this lack, uh, and then I can practice at home in a little space that I designate specifically for practicing the sense of lack. And uh, all that usually does is tends to exacerbate the sense of lack. So that uh, people oftentimes will, you know, have the little, you know, the little uh, um, shrine or whatever you want to call it, or their little their uh, their their zafu center in their in their apartment, and they're reminded every time they sit down, okay, this is my time for peace and everything. But they're continually reminded of just how much things suck. That that's typically where they go. And then they start practicing with the group and everything shifts. Uh, It doesn't mean that things suddenly stop, you know, uh, going poorly, but it definitely means that they have a whole bunch of mirrors to look at. And that's really how we act for each other in Sangha, in a spiritual group. We actually bring out qualities um, or, or rather qualities are brought out in others, just in our interplay, that we actually have within ourselves. Carl Jung was really great about this when he pointed out that, you know, when you actually are finding something that you don't like about another person, you're actually discovering something that you don't like about yourself. We've done some work in this sangha looking at what we call the shadow. I don't care how much you meditate, no matter how much you meditate, your shadow tendencies, as Jung might put this, aren't going to miraculously disappear. There are still things that we need to work with. The shadow, in other words, is something we usually want to keep hidden. Whatever it is in you that you really actually kind of want people not to see. All right? I would also argue that meditation actually has a way of, in some respects, helping us hide those qualities in us that we'd rather not look up pretty effectively initially. And then there comes a point when this study 
together, we start recognizing that awakening ultimately is only possible as an effort that occurs with others. It's not something that happens in our apartment or in our home. It's something that happens, that that is perhaps pointed out on an experience anywhere. It might be on the BART train. It might be while you're eating a meal. It might be while you're ice skating. It might be while you're sitting on your cushion or at a retreat. Who knows? But these experiences begin to point us in a direction where we get to go even deeper. And the idea of a group, what it tends to do is it helps to speed up that process. It is a shortcut. Meditation, the greatest shortcut of all, followed shortly thereafter by a group of people that you don't have to hang out with. You don't have to like. (laughs) But having them on the same path actually works to support the process. It helps speed it up. So if you find that you're in one of those situations where it's like, you know, life ain't going the way I really wish it would go, Step one is making sure that you can kind of start familiarizing yourself with a practice that you feel comfortable with. And then making sure that you can somehow affiliate with a group. You can actually hang. And I'm still, I'm still of the mind that uh, hanging out virtually may help a little bit more than I originally thought. I've been amazed at some of the feedback Infinite Smile has received from people from all reaches all over the planet, you know, kind of saying this was helpful or this was helpful. So to the extent that we as a group are letting people see us, that we are allowing ourselves to be transparent through podcasts, through videos, through, you know, retreat offerings and stuff like that. I think this is kind of a, it's a magical gift. And what are we really trying to do? What is the effort? The effort that we are kind of, uh, subscribing to, for lack of a better term, is really about being open. It's about no longer hiding. And if we're all doing this together, okay, if we're all doing this together, we can at least look across the room, let's say, this is what I did at least, I don't want to, so let me back up. What I used to do was struggle mightily with all sorts of individuals when I started my spiritual practice. And I started actually affiliating with a teacher and a teaching and this group. And this group that the teacher tended to attract, in my initial view, was quite simply a bunch of wackos. You know? They were either on the New Age fringe and drove me flipping crazy, you know, with their their questions, you know, uh, you know, I swore if I heard one more person say, oh, your energy today, it's, you're showing an aura that's t-, it's like, shut up. When in fact, they were being quite loving. I wasn't there yet. I wasn't, I wasn't able to receive what they were offering me, which was care. Now, I still think auras are bullshit, but that's another issue. <laughs> same thing applies for you know all sorts of other individuals some were just downright nasty downright nasty people i know are struggling with borderline personality disorder or at least major bipolarity 
and they would show up regularly. And it's like, do I got to deal with this guy? Do I got to? Or the guy, one of my favorites, who I became close friends with. Uh, I, I will mention his first name. His first name was Frank. And Frank, I, I to this, I could not place his accent. I thought Frank might have been. Uh, uh, I thought he had a kind of a Magyar or Hungarian accent or something. And then somebody said, oh, no, 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 he's Sicilian. And then somebody else, you know, all these stories about Frank. And Frank was one of these people who wore a Rolex, platinum Rolex with diamonds in it. Okay? But he's missing this tooth right here. <laughs> Go figure. And he stunk of garlic every single time I sat near him. Try sitting in a Zendo for more than an hour with somebody who is just, I mean, it was like he was a clove, you know? <laughs> and I learned to just love the guy. He taught me something about myself. Every one of these people that I resisted, I recognized I was resisting qualities that they had in them, deep within them, that I didn't like in myself. Kind of like how I don't like when I smell like a clove of garlic. So, I think one of the things that can be really powerful is to consider, as we sit here tonight, that Sangha is something that's very precious. The group, Sangha means the collection, group. It's very precious. Everyone here has something to teach us, and we do not need to feel compelled to hang with them. On the flip side, some of my best, dearest, closest friends are people that I started sitting with years and years and years ago. So I just am kind of given that little bit of a rah-rah speech. I also wanted to touch on something really basic in terms of Sangha. One of the things, one of the questions that has come up again and again and again, and I wanted to address it before you sit tonight so that you can perhaps give it a little bit of a, a whirl. Um, a lot of people have uh, been asking me, people that have actually even been sitting for quite some time, saying, you know what, you spend a tremendous amount of time talking about the seer within, or the witness. The witness. I'm not getting it. And so, what I want to offer to each of you it's just this, this sense right now that the witness is the one thing you cannot escape from. The witness is your sense of this beautiful expanse we call awareness. So right now, with your eyes open, if you can give attention to what is behind your sternum right now, right now, what is behind your sternum, this central bone in your body, what's behind there? Get a sense of it. What does it feel like? Does it feel kind of open and relaxed or does it feel tight and closed? That's the witness right there, recognizing the feeling can you get a sense of what it feels like right now behind each of your eyeballs? Just get a sense. What does it feel like behind your eyeballs? Can you bring your awareness to what's behind your eyeballs? That sense 
that ability to sense what's going on behind your eyeballs is this witnessing awareness. And we can do that with every single aspect of our life, not just physically. You can do it with your mental life, especially watching your thoughts. Your ability to watch your thoughts within your mind. So powerful. That is the witness. Your ability to watch your emotions, your feelings, your anxieties, your fears, your pain, your pleasure. Your ability to do that and just be aware, be there for it, open to it. That's the witness. It's never not there. It's always there. And being able to, if you will, exercise this, really, really pay close attention to your life through this lens we call the witness is a way of bringing your life into sharp, sharp focus. Things will become clear. But that's our practice as a Sangha. And there's nothing new about that. It's exactly what the Buddha taught. It's what Christ taught. So, um, whatever tradition you're in, let's give this, if you will, secular approach towards deepening our lives. Um, give it some, uh, give it some air time. Give it some cushion time or chair time. And that's what we'll do tonight. Sit for a little bit. Just be that witness of your experience, whatever is going on. Okay, for 30 or so minutes. I have a talk. I have a Q&A. Then we'll all go out to the roundup. That was a, that was a joke. For those of you wondering, this is what a Dharma talk looks like. Um, you just kind of, yeah, yeah, so did I. Today's challenge was to get qualities of awakening and then what the mind needs to be able to cultivate in order to get there. Okay? So you ready? Okay. <laughs> so the qualities of... Uh, an awakened being, I think, can vary depending on who you're talking to. But if we look historically, or if we look through, like, uh, uh, let's say we were to take on Buddhist scripture, since it's what I'm most familiar with and so forth, a lot of it has to do with, you know, just straight up being flexible rather than being brittle, you know, being flexible in the face of all that life offers you. And one of the ways that this is articulated uh, and the way it really settled in, in my view and why it was so powerful was that it was put in terms of um, what, what everything kind of kept pointing towards was openness. That there is an openness that we can kind of cultivate as human beings in the face of anything. So one of the... Uh, I was speaking to a friend recently about uh, a retreat where the retreat generated this amazing openness and that that openness could then become kind of a flow into the next day and so forth and how it was just so, so wonderful. And then everything kind of started to tighten up again. And 
the the awakened being is able to be just so we're really clear here at ease with ease and dis-ease disease that there's a continual steadiness in the face of whatever shows up this doesn't mean that you're you know happy all the time necessarily as much as it means that you're steady in the way you meet whatever is arising that the fluctuations uh, of life, that the the winds of change uh, aren't things that knock us off of a, a center. And so in the teaching, what I found so, so remarkably helpful was this idea that, uh, you know, awakening is where we all happen to be in our natural state. We are all naturally fully expressing ourselves in meditation, if you think about it. If we are talking, we are limiting our expression typically to what is being heard and how it is being said, okay? That we are seen and valued for a limited amount of what we are expressing if it comes in terms of sound, be it singing or vocalization, or as writers, if we're just painting the words beautifully on the, on the page. Yes, there's depth to it, there's consciousness that's given to it, but ultimately our full expression is when we are just raw and in silence. We're fully expressed, we're fully here. Okay? And so that, while it may sound paradoxical, is uh, uh, quite a remarkable thing because not only is it that we are expressing ourselves fully, we are physicalizing an openness. We are just being here for whatever arises. We are positively engaged, absolutely engaged in what's going on. Not that we're trying to do anything to it. That's where the ego, the ego looks at engagement as, well, you've got to be a human doing. The awakened being looks at being as a reflection of their wakefulness. Being. Something we often don't spend enough time doing. We tend to be somewhere else. Except during perhaps dreamless sleep when we are fully expressing ourselves as just this. Our wakefulness can begin to show up as... uh, I've described it sometimes as non-expectation. The more we live our lives by expectation, ultimately the more we suffer, the more we're disappointed. So rather than living by expectation, we live as an expression of possibility. Do you understand the difference? There's a subtle difference between possibility and expectation. Expectation is looking for a guarantee or a type of certitude. And as I continually hammer, certitude is the birth of our pain. Which leads us to the next little step. Getting comfortable with not knowing. How amazing is that one? And how good we are knowing. We are so good at knowing. Culturally. And my guess is just about everybody in this room. Mastered certain kinds of knowing. Our entire educational system. Rather than cultivating. 
awareness cultivates compartmentalization, categorization, cultivates knowing in absolute terms. And it's not that this is necessarily a bad thing. I just think it might be a neat thing to add awareness practice into what it is that we teach our students and each other. Being comfortable with not knowing, being comfortable with questioning is absolutely key to awakening. And we touched on this a little bit earlier, uh, this, this fourth quality that I think is so, so key in this process is being in a space where you can continually recognize what's prior to your impulse to do one thing or another. What's prior to the thought that arises? What's prior to this emotional event that's occurring within this body? What's prior to this body? What's prior to this mind? The minute we witness our experience is the minute we are available to that priority. If we are witnessing our ego or witnessing, I don't know if you've, if you've ever, had, like I have, where it's like, okay, don't say it, don't say it. Don't, and then, bam, you say it. And you're like, you know, trying, you know, just me? Okay, me. Anyway, so, yeah. And, and so it's like that awareness that awareness of exactly where ego is going, it's, it's, it, the, tr- the train's going, it's going, it's going. Being able to kind of check in and check it becomes absolutely key. You're beginning to engage a consciousness from a place of priority. It's prior to action. Here again, instead of being a human doing, you're actually a human being. You're being first and doing consciously. So how is it that we can kind of cultivate these qualities? How can we, you know, how can we, can we support them, you know, in our day to day? And I'll, I'll just kind of rattle these off. I could probably spend a lot of time on each one, but just because, um, uh, uh, I'm exhausted. I think I will go with uh, just kind of giving you a brief editorial. I'll begin with uh, by saying maybe the most important thing is to let go. Okay? When we let go, we are able to meet the world from a place of non-expectation. When we let go, we are able to meet meet the world from a place of wonder rather than a place of knowing. When we let go, we are actually able to better and more skillfully ride the waves or surf the waves of life. When we let go, it does not mean to reject. When we reject something, we are clinging to what is not that thing we're rejecting. When we let go of something, we give it space. When we let go of a person or a relationship, it's not that we push it away. It's we give the relationship space. And whenever we give anything space, 
be it a relationship with a person, be it a situation at work, whatever it happens to be, when we give, when we give it space, invariably, clarity arises. And we know what decision needs to be made that's generous for everyone, including ourselves. It's weird. It's like there's this built-in Buddha that knows what to do. We just have to get the small self out of the way so that the built-in Buddha can do its bidding. can't believe how many people have approached me. I, I brought up this at a, a recent Dharma talk where I said, you know, deep down, each of us knows the right decision to make. And what was cool is sitting from where I sit here, you guys can't obviously see this. It's actually a beautiful view. But as I said that, there was this from so many faces. It was like the, the heads in the crowd, and some of you who were here may have recognized this. They went like this and went, <laughs> you know? It was, it was back, tilt, eyes open, and then one, two, three. It's quite cute. We do. We always know when we let go. Part of this also is recognizing enough. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, we, we have the perpetual cliche, how much is enough? Being able to see when something is enough, this is imperative. It's an imperative uh, appreciation. It's an imperative cultivation on the part of a practitioner to walk, you know, through the world wakefully. Recognizing also that everything, but everything is temporary. Everything is temporary. When we really see this, we're able to savor this life differently. We're not trying to protect the sanctity of permanence. We recognize the beauty of impermanence. I had this experience uh, yesterday within about a five-minute period. Uh, both of my daughters were the most precious things I had ever seen, felt, had near me and within five minutes they became small versions of Satan (laughs) and then of course they turned back but it's amazing I was so thankful you know in the moment when they were so precious and, and loving I was just like oh this is so amazing and then of course the satanic behavior started and that was like, oh, this is so amazing, too. Thank goodness there's temporariness to all things, you know. Good moods. Good moods, good fortune, temporary. Bad moods, disaster, temporary. It's all temporary. Recognizing the responsibility that you have, the kind of impact that not only you can have potentially, but that you do have and have had. Taking full responsibility for that and building a life around that, that impact that you have had and will continue to have. How are you going to play those cards well? 
How are you going to be a manifestation of generosity? How can you make that impact one that is felt as a blessing? Next, and this varies in doses, different people have it in different, different capacities, but it's courage. This work takes guts. <laughs> it really does. Um, it's not... I would say in general, meditation, deep spiritual work is not about an escape. Rather, it's, it's full participation. It's about not hiding. I would also say integrity is key, especially internally. Being able to look at yourself in the mirror, knowing that you have been truthful to yourself and to others. And if you haven't been, how can you make it right? would argue that simplicity is key. In addition to integrity, simplicity. You know, rather than turning your existence into something that's deeply complex and convoluted, get rid of what's extra. You don't perhaps need all that you have amassed this doesn't mean you need to renounce or reject, but be really careful how it is that you, for instance, might consume. What is your footprint? Carbon and otherwise. Think, think along these terms. This is a really, really healthy way of meeting, meeting the challenges, not only facing the world on a global level and everything, but it's about, once again, generosity. Living in accord with others. Here's a perpetual challenge for me. This next one is patience. Easily the most impatient Zen student that ever walked the earth. Uh, I remember just walking into the experience of meditation and the, uh, the Sangha and so forth just going 100 miles an hour because I had been able to live so effectively as a bullet. That was, I was good at that. Um, and cultivating this patience with steel, you know, with courage was a really valuable, valuable lesson. I would say next one is Tenderness. That there's a certain tenderness, a softness that is cultivated alongside courage, strength, power, righteousness, you know. That there is also tenderness, that there's ability to be soft. I remember my teacher once, he said, he just kept saying again and again and again, you know, you're going to get so much further on the, in this, not to me directly, but to the group, you're going to get so much further in this practice if you cultivate a soft mind. Which on the surface sounds like exactly what I'm sure I'll be experiencing at the age of 94. 
or sooner. But the point was that they're, don't be so just rigid, you know? What's the definition of youth? Flexibility, right? That we can continually be youthful, even in the way we might manage thinking, our minds, and our bodies. Yoga is good. And lastly, recognizing that it's all one thing. It's all one thing. We are all subatomic spin, living in this universe, one song that's always playing. We are an expression of one taste, always. And we get lost, instead of in the one, we get lost in the many. We get lost in accumulation. We get lost in complexity. We get lost in demand. We get lost in trying to bend life to our will as opposed to letting life engender beauty through us again and again and again. So I would encourage each of you to allow this work, such as it is for you, if this is something you're just kind of dabbling in, awesome. If this is something you're taking very seriously, awesome. Doesn't matter. What does matter is recognizing that there is something in this stuff, however you choose to look at it, that is so unbelievably valuable that people for the last 3,500 years have been screaming from the mountaintops the same thing. We just do a little differently now. Now we podcast it. Thank you for coming. People oftentimes lump Buddhist practice, for instance, into the same category as mythical magical practices such as pyramid worship and crystals and and stuff like that. And I think they're vastly, vastly different. One is about sitting still. The other one is about taking objects that will somehow magically heal. Maybe they do. Maybe it's placebo. It doesn't matter. My point is this work has nothing to do with anything that will save you. It has everything to do with you taking a look at your own experience with your own inner sense and cultivating an awareness continually of that interior landscape of Ross, right? And it has nothing to do with good luck or good luck charms or anything like or your aura or energy centers and so forth. It's not that they're wrong, okay? Your chakras may or may not be in line. I don't care. It has nothing to do with this work, okay? If I've offended you, I'm really sorry. It's just, it's just my opinion, which is worth precisely nothing. It's oh, just an opinion. I don't want to get too much into it, but it sounds mm-hmm. like what I'm hearing is that not so much that auras are bullshit, but that people that say that they can see them may be full of shit. Yeah, oh, okay. Well, so, yeah. Um, and I don't know. I mean, maybe I don't know what an aura is. I mean, we can walk into a room... Any of, any of us, and some people are more you know, empathic than others, you can walk into a room and go, 
they're in pain. Are you seeing an aura? Or are you just really tuned in to observing, feeling, and hearing what's going on? Right? There's a big difference between that and confusing it with somebody who can see an aura. Having said that, I see images when I drink wine. I'm not kidding. No, I hallucinate like you would not. No, when I drink when I drink wine, it, and it was very. This happened the um, uh, one of the f- very first times I ever went wine tasting, and I realized I could do it pretty well. I could I could pick things apart because when I when I could smell the wine, it it showed up in color. Um, and I I can't remember the name of that. What is what is that? There's a name for that. Synesthesia. Synesthesia. Thank you very much. So, so, and it's really pretty much just just with scent, with smells, but it happens in color for me. And so, like, there's a huge difference between a meritage that has like a whole bunch of Syrah in it. In my, I can, it, it's it's all red. Like, but it's it's a very it's a very interesting. And now that doesn't happen in other circumstances. So I'm, you know. But does that mean I'm seeing aura? No, it's just the way the sense experience happens. So I kind of am with you on that whole thing. Maybe it's not so much that you know the aura doesn't exist, but that you know it's it's people that claim that they can see it. That, that might be, yeah. Yes, Molly. Um, so I was I um, le- like learned meditation through aura reading. <laughs> okay, so I'm screwed. I really. <laughs> So, yeah, no, if you I get... don't even want to talk about that. <laughs> I bet you don't. <laughs> you really don't. But, um, I so when I, I'm trying to get, like, I've been going to different Buddhist, like, sittings, and yeah. um, I find myself, since I, like, learned how to meditate through um, them, that I'm doing that, but mm-hmm. then it doesn't really feel right, because we're all, like, trying to do the same thing, you know? But if right. I'm doing my, like, something different, it just feels so wrong. <laughs> But um, then it, that sort of feels like clinging, and then I'm, like, getting stuck on, like, I'm meditating wrong, like, you're clinging about that. And so, anyways. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? You are so not alone. Yeah. Because they're not going to raise their hands. But if I asked that question, how many of you don't, and don't, don't raise your hands here, but if I asked the question, how many of you feel like you're doing the meditation wrong, 90% of the hands would go up in this room. <laughs> so so you're, not, you're not alone in that in that capacity well it's not that i feel like i'm doing it wrong i feel like i'm doing a great job as far as like aura reading Mm -hmm. that sort of thing goes what does my aura look like now well it used to be blue and now black (laughs) yeah yeah i knew it (laughs) no i'm just kidding Um, no i'm really not yeah but um i just is there a certain way that you have like um like, you know, different Buddhists... Uh, different Buddhists different practice it differently. Practices are different, and they're all going towards the same thing. So, like, if I'm meditating in, like, the way that aura readers do it, uh-huh. does that necessarily matter? Or could you achieve, like, the same... Yeah. Right. No, I think that's a great question. And so, so I don't know how this is going to strike you, but what I'm talking about and what this, this practice is pointing toward is what is prior to the color of any aura. Okay. We're talking about the source of any aura. Okay? It comes from energy. The difference between you and me, Molly, is energy and organization. 
that's it. That's it. If you think about it. I mean, at the subatomic level, that's the only... And the same applies for this fake plastic tree. All right? So it's all the same thing. It's all one song. All right? As far as meditative technique goes, there are... And it's really easy to kind of, I think, get smug about a way of doing it. Our way is right versus this way or, or whatever. And I would say that all of the techniques have something really valuable, really valuable to show us at some level of our practice. And I started practicing, believe it or not, on chakra meditation, okay? Where I would go to the, each, each of the chakra centers in the body and I would spend 15 breaths on each chakra center, try to slow down every single rotation of every single shot. That's how I got introduced to it. And I absolutely, I was as high as I'd ever been. It was like, okay, this is cool. But what I started to find was that I was going after state experiences. Okay? That's exactly how I feel. So, and it was really, it was really fun. It's and like I, a high. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And, right. And so all that is really is getting invited to the party. Okay? And the party has nothing to do with feeling high. It actually has to do with feeling more. So what happened was my path, my journey went from that kind of an experience into something that was even deeper. And it happened to be Zen. It doesn't have to be Zen. But Zen I thought was so cool because it was like, well, okay, what's my mantra? There's no mantra. Uh, okay. Well, well, what am I meditating on? You are meditating on nothing. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, my God, there's no, there's no floor. There's no, there's no, now what? And before you knew it, or before I knew it, there was this radical, profound experience of emptiness, which is exactly what's prior to the aura. Okay? So, this was validated later when I went to Nepal, and I'm sitting in front of this great lama and everything who, like, you know, hangs out with the Dalai Lama or whatever. I'm going, okay, this is pretty intimidating and so forth. And he says, what's the object of your meditation? Some of you have heard me say this before. And I said, I, there's no, no object to my meditation. He says, so you, you just sit there? And it's like, yeah, is that wrong? He says, no, it's, it's very advanced. And I'm like, <laughs> right? Very advanced. And so, and so the part of the birth of Infinite Smile was that let's take that very advanced approach and put it in regardless of tradition, regardless of chakras and auras or, or, or you know, the, the Torah or Talmud or, you know, Quran or Bible, whatever. Mm-hmm. Let's actually see if we can deepen whatever practice you're in by shutting up and sitting still. Because what shutting up and sitting still will do is it will put your mind in a deeply quiet place. And when your mind is quiet and your body is still the universe avails itself to you so naturally. And it's not about getting high. It's about being at ease with being high or with being really low and everything in between. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. All right. What's my aura now? I have to go into trance to read aura. <laughs> <laughs> that was a serious statement. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah, we'll work on it. Yeah. 
anyway, thank you. Thank you for asking that, yeah, actually. Yeah. Got time for one more, if that clock's right. Anyone? I'm so exhausted. Yeah. Can you give me five minutes this week? Is that okay? Yeah. All right. Love you guys. Yes. Yeah.